0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and today I'm very happy to say we'll be talking with Elizabeth Rodriguez about her book, Collecting Lives. Critical Data Narratives as Modernist Ascetic in Early 20th Century U.S. Literature, and it's just out today from the University of Michigan Press. Liz, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you for having me, Marshall.
0: Absolutely, my pleasure. Could you kick us off by telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do at Grinnell College, and how you got there?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> um, it is a little bit of a, a long story, but I like to tell it um, because Uh, it's, it's maybe it's slightly unusual story, um, for an academic kind of career path, but, um, I, so I did my undergraduate degree in English with emphases in creative writing and, um, Greek as a minor. And, um, then was just, you know, in a period of kind of discernment about where I was going to take that and knowing that I wanted to be involved in education in some way, um, And it's kind of a confluence of events. Um, I discovered academic librarianship and was able to pursue my master's of library and information science um, at University of South Florida, where I was living in Florida at the time. Um, And then um, when I finished that degree, I was on the job market and looking around and there was a one-year job open uh, at Grinnell College Libraries for a uh, humanities reference librarian. And so with my, you know, master's and my undergraduate background, um, I thought, well, I might be a good fit for this. Um, and I also went to a small liberal arts college um, and so was very much on board with um, the idea of having my first job be at Grinnell. Um, and I was fortunate to to get that position. And so I spent my first year um, as a librarian here, uh, 2008, 2009 at Grinnell College um, as hu- uh, a term humanities and reference librarian um, uh, replacing um, Rebecca Sturr, who was on sabbatical that year. And, um, you know, I mentioned 2008-2009 because that um, was also kind of the era of the birth of this major library um, resource and initiative called the Hattie Trust, which is a copy of every scanned book um, that, that Google has scanned for Google Books. So part of the arrangement in the creation of Google Books. So universities um, are allowing their collections to be scanned. Major research universities that have huge collections um, you know, said, we will allow books to be scanned, but we want a copy of every scan. And that's what HathiTrust has um, come to curate and make um, as freely available as possible within um, the status of copyright law. And so, so I mention this because it's kind of my entry into librarianship um, paralleled the birth of this really vast uh, database of library book collections. And kind of in the process, um, oh, I should also mention one other thread here. 2008 was the year that, uh, um, you know, uh, Barack Obama was elected as president, and uh, Nate Silver kind of became you know, this guru of data-driven predictions. Um, and so, you know, this was kind of the first time in my awareness that the terms big data and this reverence around this idea of we have this new set of information called big data and, there, you know, if we apply the right tools, um, we will be able to predict the future much more accurately and, and reassuringly um, in certain cases. and um, And so just that... That confluence, right, of, of people starting to talk about data as a mode of knowledge creation that was going to kind of exceed um, everything that I had been taught could come through human interpretation. Um, with the same time as having this, you know, on the the kind of the library side, having this huge collection of library information become available. And just a quick, you know, doing a keyword search in Hottie Trust um, will, will very quickly make you realize that the thing that you are looking for. Um, is just one tiny, small sliver of a huge body of printed literature. And um, it really, the, the the confluence of this idea that, um, you know, if we collect enough data, it will narrate itself with my, you know, much deeper professional immersion with, if we said we wanted all the data of, you know, literature and, and publication, if we wanted all that data, what would it actually feel like to have that data? Um, it, it feels like like any kind of prediction or single narrative is just dwarfed by the presence of that data. And so that really kind of stuck in my mind as I went on to pursue my PhD in English. Um, and so as I was kind of working through that path, um, after that one-year job, I decided to pursue the PhD in English. Um, and, you know, in the process of kind of discovering what my work um, as a doctoral student was going to be, I realized I couldn't quite shake that that kind of displacement, um, that being involved in a much larger data universe had had you know presented me with. Um, and so kind of in a I, 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 that that was kind of always there, and I kept kind of always thinking, you know, how does this affect how we study literature? How does it affect how we understand literature? And um, you know, kind of as my interest developed, I realized I was very interested in kind of, early 20th century, late 19th century um, U.S. literatures um, associated with, you know, what what is kind of broadly been referred to as the modernist period. Um, and modernism is sometimes much more associated with British literature, but there's also obviously a, a huge um, U.S. American context for it as well. And that's where I really kind of, you know, started to, to narrow in. And, and I started seeing kind of all these little hints that This way of thinking about data, not as something that was going to provide narrative, but as something that was going to overwhelm and challenge and in some ways, you know, really productively change our conception of narrative that was already present um, well before the advent of mechanical computation. And so I really think that um, kind of my background in libraries kind of informed um, the genesis of that book project and kind of the completion of my um, doctoral degree in realizing that, you know, what that that, you know, as, as a librarian, right, we say we're generalists, like we all have many intellectual passions and that, um, you know, my best fit was going to be in a library setting that was thinking about how we use digital tools um, to create knowledge at the same time as being able to teach kind of what goes into those tools, right, not just how to use them. But but why they work, how they work, um, what the history is of um, being able to kind of publish ideas and and understand the world in the way that we do. Um, And lo and behold, in just a very strange kind of twist of fate, um, I I went from my PhD to my, I did a postdoc with the Council of Library and Information Resources um, at Temple University in their, at that time, brand new Digital Scholarship Center, which is now the Loretta Duckworth Scholar Studio in their um, brand new library. And, um, so I was, I was, I, as I was in that postdoc, um, a position became available at Grinnell College again, <laughs> um, but this time in a full-time... And you must have made yeah. a good
0: impression during I, your I'd own... like to think so.
1: Yes. <laughs> I'd like to think so, because, you know, well, I mean, you, you have to assume so, because you realize when you're reapplying for a job you've already had, like, that's all you've got, really.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it almost <laughs> doesn't matter what's the rest
1: of the materials. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so so it, it was basically, so it was a couple iterations later of the same job that I had had in the one-year version, but now reimagined as humanities and digital scholarship librarian. Um, so I'm, I'm one example of a person who has a job that didn't exist when I went to school for it. Um, and uh, I, I could not really have predicted that that particular job would become available at that particular time. Um, but, but since I'd been at Grinnell College, I knew that it, it's really um, an environment that doesn't try to make people fit into jobs. It Builds jobs around people. So I knew it was a place um, where the librarians were highly collaborative and also, um, you know, highly, like very involved in their scholarly research agendas. So I knew that it would be a place where I could kind of continue to work on both kind of academic research, um, as well as teaching, as well as, you know, the being part of this just exciting, powerful, collaborative endeavor of being a library, of, of trying to steward the resources um, and provide access to the resources that people need to make discoveries. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's that's what I do here.
0: That's a cool story, I've got to say. That is a very <laughs> cool story. And I should give a shout out or at least acknowledge my debt to the to Burling Library at Grinnell College, where I'm thinking you're sitting right now. Is that correct? I am. Yep. Yes. Yep. I can't tell you how many thousands of hours I spent there. And I remember the librarians, Christopher McKee. Was a librarian when i was there yeah and he had a research agenda too he studied uh, 18th century british navy i think so this was modeled for me very early on um, yeah and, and and also what you say about the kind of transformation of scholarship is something that i think the listeners would be interested in. i mean when i wrote uh, i'm 60 and when i wrote my first books they were all in libraries and, and i spent all my time in libraries and the last book i wrote i went to a library a couple of times of course i used all the library databases Mm-hmm. to get all the books and all the journal articles, mm-hmm. but I was able to mm-hmm. do it from the comfort of my uh, home. But I didn't get to hang out with people at the library, which is what I did at Berkeley, <laughs> 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 where I met all of my friends, all the other yep. library rats. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Yeah. yeah it really has changed. Tr- I mean, since we've been able to get inside the books, so to say, to do uh, string searches inside books, it really has transformed scholarship. I mean, you can really find... Yeah. Uh, connections that you never, ever would have found, or at least at great, you'd be at great pains to to make the connections. Yeah, it would be one or two very, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. with algorithmic (laughs) searches, you you can really do kind of amazing stuff. You can see things that you would not have been able to see. And I know this is true in my own scholarship. So it's, it's an exciting time to be a librarian. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Agreed. People don't think about
0: that, but it's like it's a really <laughs> exciting time to be a librarian. I mean, just even to sort of this is tangential, but like the New Books Network, we've published 14,000 interviews with academic authors. And they're not in libraries now. There's not there's no there are no MARC records for mm. our interviews, but they are of scholarly mm. value. And so I've talked yeah. to librarians about like, how would we somehow integrate these into the databases that the MARC record, or whatever the records are called
1: now. Are they still called MARC records? There are still mark records. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, yes. I can't read yeah. yeah.
0: But how do we integrate this? Is there an algorithmic way to do it that wouldn't involve zillions of person hours? And but you know, this is something that that, that they should be represented in, in academic collections because they're you know, in a hundred years, people want to come back to your interview, like in, and. <laughs> <laughs>
1: take taking less time than reading the book. So, uh, yeah, I mean, well,
0: and, and so they should somehow be represented in academic libraries. But how to do this, we, do, we haven't figured out yet. But anyway, that's enough about the New Books Network and computers. Um, can you tell me why you wrote Collecting Lives and what you were hoping to accomplish with the book?
1: Yeah. So, I think, you know, the number one thing I wanted to accomplish is I wanted to change how people think about the relationship between data and narrative. Um, because uh, just seeing, having experienced it in my own life, life like this disjunction between um, kind of this this sense floating around culturally that uh, data would reveal, right? If we just collect enough data, um, it will reveal um, a truth that that we don't need to agree on. It will just be true, and um, and and then having actually gotten closer to working with bigger data, both through the Hottie Trust and through um, just, you know, being involved with managing um, library resources at scale, right? You start to see, like, this is a lot of data. Um, and just having seen that, oh, actually, no, it makes things less clear, not more clear um, when you actually are, um, you know, having your hands on it. So I really, um, I wanted to provoke um, that, that, moment of recognition of like, oh, data is very different from narrative. Um, data is driven by collection. Um, data gains its value through through collecting more of it and um, ideally collecting all of it, although that's an ideal that's never actually reached conceptually that very much drives, I think, how we talk about data. We talk about it as um, a kind of very exhaustive way of representing uh, reality and um narrative is um, very much driven by selection. It's driven by taking the most meaningful points and stringing them together in a way that demonstrates um, causality um, and just in a kind of very traditional way, causality and some sense of change and closure. And, um, you know, I think when you actually are looking at data points, um, you start to see that there's there's no self-selecting data point that they're um, at when you want to change data into something that you can wrap your head around so something closer to narrative something closer to meaning you have to make choices about what you're going to value um, Mm -hmm. out of that data collection um, and select as important points to kind of even if you you never actually feel like you're making an argument your selection of certain data points Um, as meaningful becomes an argument. Um, It becomes a kind of narrative. And so um, I wanted, I wanted people to kind of see that data does not narrate itself. um, And that that people have been grappling with this for much longer time um, than we would call the era of big data. Um, So, you know, like you're a historian, right? So, you know, that we all have this kind of very present bias, right? Like if it's, if it's something big now, it must be brand new now. Um, But actually people have been grappling with what it means to collect data um, about human lives um, for, you know, a very long time. Um, And very meaningfully I found in the early um, late 19th and early 20th century U.S. As questions around race, ethnicity, and gender um, were at a moment um, of you know high public debate, high tension, um, a lot of policy decisions being made about you know mm-hmm. what will citizenship mean, um, both for. Um, the you know formerly enslaved and the descendants of the formerly enslaved, as well as this influx of um, you know folks from other countries um, coming to the United States um, for a whole variety of reasons, some staying, some not, um, and just thinking about you know where what what does it mean to be a U.S. self um, at this time? And so um, I just I thought it was a really um, it was very compelling to me to think about um, both. You know this this disjunction between data and narrative, and also how um, these writers were grappling with that in the context of U.S. identity. Um, so I guess kind of an underlying thread here when I when I talk about narrative, um, I'm talking a lot about life narrative, because I think that's kind of one of the most It's a very compelling site to me of, you know, where the rubber meets the road in terms of both kind of narrative theory and kind of personal identity formation. Um, We're all constantly using narratives to understand ourselves all of the time. Um, And so, you know, as we become more kind of self-aware about the mechanics of narrative, um, I want that to be able to kind of open up how we think about, you know, narrating life stories Um, And so so I'm looking in particular um, at in this early late 19th and early 20th century period um, of writers who did both, who both collected data and also um, engaged in some type of autobiographical writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just find that that that's a really interesting spot because you could say that, right, in some ways, a life could be imagined as a data collection. um, And it's often, you know, imagined as a, a story. Um, what happens when those two things kind of bump against each other.
0: Mm -hmm. Very well put. Um, Let me read a wonderful sentence from your book that I think encapsulates some of what you just said a little bit more, maybe. This book examines how modernist writers who collected data, or is it data? I don't know.
1: I go back and forth. I'm inconsistent (laughs) in my pronunciation. Let me
0: start over. (laughs) This book examines how modernist writers who collected data and narrated lives navigate this space, pinpointing an unexplored intersection between the rise of data collection, and that's the part I want to talk about, as a method of knowing the human and modernist experimentation in narrative form. So I was thinking about that sentence. It's a great sentence. And I know a little bit about the rise of data collection. Obviously, states and various authorities have collected data forever. But I was thinking about a couple of writers like Henry David Thoreau's Walden. He collected Mm. data and wrote a kind mm-hmm. of autobiography but not in the way you're talking about no right yeah no not
1: yeah well i mean for every for every project right there's there's the texts that go unselected yeah, right for one reason or another yeah right yeah. but
0: his sources were different and then i was thinking about a book that i'd read a, a long time ago uh emile Zola's germinal and this book's kind of famous because the guy went and lived with coal miners oh wow <laughs> <He did>. yeah <laughs> And so he collected data for that, but this is not the kind of data you're talking about here, right? This is a sort of systematic collection of data by various governmental and academic institutions, or they might be interest groups that has some sort of probably political or policy purpose. Is that right?
1: I would say that, you know, data collection, especially when you're talking about life writing, right? It exists on a spectrum, right? An ins- a spectrum of intentionality, a spectrum of kind of exhaustivity that you're aiming for. Um, so, so kind of when I was thinking about what authors to bring together, um, I was thinking about, you know, kind of writers that both wrote autobiographically, but also had these notable data collection projects, um, that were perhaps, you know, literary, but not necessarily, you know, they, they, they were somewhat separate from their literary endeavors. Um, and so, you know, in the case of W.B. Du Bois, um, who is the subject of the first chapter. Yeah, why don't we just, um,
0: I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. why don't we just start right <laughs> oh. there and go through these four authors. And Du Bois is an interesting case because I've read a lot of Du Bois. And I, I got to say, I always thought of him as kind of an early social scientist. Also, his books are a little bit hard to classify because he like occasionally drop a poem into one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to drop any poems into my next monograph, but he did.
1: <laughs> he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so I think maybe that's could, actually, yeah.
0: Yeah. Maybe you could talk yeah. a little bit about him and, and, and how he fits into the, the, the narrative that you are constructing.
1: Yeah. So this is, um, you know, it isn't just the first chapter of the book. It's the first chapter that I wrote of the whole project um, because he, his, his combined life work. I mean, he was prolific in every measure. but he has, uh, you know, a body of sociological work um, that, you know, folks who come at him through kind of the literary studies angle might become might be less familiar with. Um, so, you know, the first Du Bois work that I had read was Souls of Black Folk and was very struck by the same thing that he were.
0: poems. were. <laughs> it's just
1: and there's, you know, we say that book is multi-formal. It's it's yeah. multi-formal. Right. But it also somehow hangs together better then, you know, what you'd say like, oh, this is just a, a bunch of essays that I wrote and I collected them um, to put into a book. So there's something more than just a collection of essays. There's something that that forms a powerful coherence, um, but through such a diversity of forms um, and and. That's fascinating to me, right? And and if you start to kind of think about how you're framing that work, um, and it's been framed many different ways by many yeah, different it's very uh, literary scholars.
0: It's a yeah. very hard to classify book. Yeah. It's shocking <laughs> from the modern kind of if you you know, it's a good example of what you find in the book is what you bring to the book, because if you're a social scientist, you're going to say social science. And if you're a literary scholar, you're going to say this is literature.
1: (laughs) And if you study life writing, you're going to say, this is a very experimental autobiography. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So, so just grappling with that, right. And that he's going from this kind of very, he, he, he ricochets between, um, you know, these very expressive passages. um, And then in, and This is even more the case um, in a later collection called *Dark Water: um, Voices from Behind the Veil*, that I kind of discuss in in companionship with um, *Souls of Black Folk*. Um, he has, you know, outright speculative fiction in that second in that second collection. Um, so just going from the observational to the expressive to the prophetic, um, there's such a range of tones and approaches that he uses. But kind of the more time I spent with him, the more it seemed to me that he's using all these ranges and tones still to try to grapple with what is this thing called reality. Um, I think this is something that differentiates modernists from postmodernists. I think, you know, modernists do still kind of think there is a reality out there um, and it may be far broader than, um, you know, traditional ways of understanding it have allowed us to see. But there is still a reality out there and, and there is a way of talking about it that makes sense. Um, and, but I see him, you know, trying to grapple with that, but then looking for all these different languages and approaches, um, and social science approaches being one of them. Um, and, and so, you know, to kind of think more about that, I went back to his kind of major sociological work, the Philadelphia Negro, Mm -hmm. um, which, um, you know, predates souls, um, by a few years, I think it's late 1890s and souls is, um, you know, 1903. So, and just. Digging into that, and through that, realizing like, oh, you know, Du Bois had kind of a, a scholarly kind of life path ahead of him. He thought, right? He he was really pursuing, um, you know, the academic credentials that you would associate with somebody who was going to go on and have a, a professorship at an Ivy League institution. Um, you know, he goes to Harvard. He gets a fellowship to study in Germany with the, you know, the leading kind of historians of his time. Um, his doctoral dissertation was, you know, phenomenal. It was just, his work was outstanding. Um, but he finishes his education and kind of the only job he can get at the time, it, he, he says, um, is as an adjunct professor and researcher at University of Pennsylvania, specifically because they had commissioned a project um, to try to understand, um, you know, African-American life in Philadelphia, obviously from a very white perspective. Um, as Du Bois puts it, right, that they had a they had a theory um, and the theory was that African-Americans in Philadelphia were a big problem for Philadelphia as a city and they needed to be fixed. And um, they were looking for somebody to collect the data to prove that theory. And that's kind of where he takes off and says, I will collect the data. I will collect as much data as I can possibly get, more different kinds of data than you could even, you know, than you conceived of when you commissioned this study, right? Because he's going well beyond what was considered um, the data of African-American life by uh, white researchers at the time, which was basically, you know, boiled down into poverty rates, mortality rates, crime rates. Um, He collects, you know, data of um, kind of how historical data, right? So how African American life has been constrained by legal policies in Philadelphia over time. Um, he he does um, he surveys the entire Seventh Ward, um, and actually one of my favorite quotations from uh, um, people that I read in in studying Du Bois um, was uh, from a collection um, about. Uh, the Philadelphia Negro, where where the writer basically says Du Bois does not survey, <laughs> right? He <laughs> he tries to go to every single home in the seventh ward of Philadelphia um, to collect information about um, African American homes, um, not not picking and choosing, right? Like I'm going to pick you know, two from here and two from here. He tries to go to every single home and he does it physically himself. Wow. Um, he doesn't have a research assistant. Um, you know, he's the researcher and the data collector and the data organizer. And um, he, you know, he, he says basically like they they had a theory and they wanted me to prove it, Um to to avoid that, to avoid reproducing this fixed narrative that had already been placed on the African-American community in Philadelphia, he doesn't, you know, refuse to collect data. He doesn't refuse to engage with the empiricist project. He says, no, you're doing empiricism wrong. I'm going to get all of this data and I'm going to show you how much more complicated it is. Um, And so, you know, basically, um, you know, through this data, he's able to show this very heterogeneous um, African-American community. No surprise to the African-American community, right? But a right. surprise to the white audience um, who isn't expecting to, you know, have time and space devoted, um, you know, not just to the those who would be classed as, you know, criminals or impoverished, but the, the working middle class and the upper class and its social structures. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to basically say, you know, the problem here isn't this community. The problem is how this community is met by assumptions about it and legally constrained from employment and, um, you know, real estate ownership. Right. <laughs> so wasn't quite the outcome they were looking for, but he uses the process of collecting more data to create multiple multiple narratives of African-American life in Philadelphia when kind of their his white funders were looking for one specific narrative.
0: A lot, a lot of his work is like, uh, uh, now we have this kind of strong distinction between, I can't remember the word, but it's, it's essentially survey techniques and ethnography. And he mm-hmm. won't have anything to do no, with that.
1: No. <laughs> He's
0: like, no, <laughs> no we're not yeah. doing it that
1: way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a phenomenal book. Um, uh, Alden Morris' uh, The Scholar Denied that has come out uh, within the last five or six years about Du Bois's career. And it, it came out uh, slightly after I had written this chapter. But, um, you know, when I was looking at that book and reading reviews, it's like, you know, everything you thought you knew about Du Bois and sociology is wrong. He, he founded sociology as a discipline in the United States. And Morris makes a very compelling case oh, yeah. that Du Bois's work, um, you know, was really ahead of its time. Um, in terms of his insistence on, you know, multiple methods, his insistence on exhaustive data collection, um, his insistence on kind of long term data collection. Uh, you know, he he proposed a plan um, to collect data about one aspect of African American life in the United States each year for 10 years, and do that for multiple decades, um, to really have this amazing cool. data set. Yeah, and that he was thinking, you know, like, we don't need one, we don't need a survey, we need Long-term, full-scale.
0: Yeah, data. that's cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, let's let's jump to the next person you deal with, and I'm surprised to see this name there, Henry Adams. Why Henry, Henry Adams. Adams? Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, a couple of reasons why Henry Adams. One, because I just I I never felt like I had fully answered the question um, of. If you're reading the education of Henry Adams, which is you know famously uh, autobiography written in the second person, um, it, the recurring theme in that book is that that he's trying to tell the story of his own education, but in every single chapter, um, he says the story the story had not yet begun, or the story had to start <laughs> over, or no story could be told. Um, and I I find something, you know, for all of its idiosyncrasies, I find something still very compelling about that sense of like, I, I wanted to have a life story, but the story keeps stopping. And I don't know why, like, I, I'm always telling the wrong story about my life because the next chapter disproves the the former chapter. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, he, he's narrating this sense of not being able to narrate yourself. And, um, so I found myself just, just my brain always wondering like, why, what is this investment in, in, the story he's trying to tell and why is it continually frustrated and and why is that the story he's telling? Like he's telling the story of not being able to tell one. Um, and as I was thinking about it in, you know, thinking about, you know, so the kind of the, the early privately published versions of the education of Henry Adams came out in 1906. Um, so, you know, right in that kind of early 20th century moment, what, what, what's kind of percolating? Um, and so, The more I was kind of looking into it, the more I realized, oh, Adams has kind of the exact opposite relationship to data that Du Bois does in a certain way is where Du Bois needs a fixed narrative to be, um, you know, demolished or at least to be proven to be not the singular narrative. Du Bois needs the presence Mm. of multiple narratives to create space for his own life to exist. For Henry Adams, his singular story was you know, an understatement of the year, an extremely privileged one. Um, so, kind of one of my favorite moments of um, kind of the Adams chapter was the moment of um, there's a quotation from uh, his oh now i'm forgetting sorry to historians is it his grandfather or his great grandfather It doesn't matter go um, ahead <laughs> so john quincy adams um, one of his paternal relations so john quincy adams in his diary in 1796 writes my studies are indeed all directed to one point which is pointed out to me by the station that i hold and this is you know the diary of a young man who feels like you know i'm i'm on a path and i know where i'm going and Everything I study is preparing me for this one thing. Whereas Henry Adams, you know, writing over a century later um, is really reflecting on like I keep learning things, right? But they don't add up to anything. Um, And so I I contrast that quotation with another one from The Education, which is, um, one began to see that a great many impressions were needed to make a very little education, but how many could be crowded into one day without making any education at all? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) that's good. And that sense of information overload as an impediment to, you know, selfhood and kind of achievement writ large. I was just really kind of fascinated by that. Yeah.
0: Well, it's a, it's an amazing book and it also rings true to, I think almost anybody of a certain age, that is the inability to narrate your own life. I don't know if you've had occasion to look at your own resume or CV. I look at it and I'm like, That is not the whole story, man. (laughs) That is not even close to the whole story. In fact, that tells a story that isn't even true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Boy, yeah. do I have things to say to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as much as I, I think, you know, we need to, to re-examine our relationship or we need to under, re- re-examine how we understand the relationship between data and narrative, um, as I kind of talk about in the coda of the book, because so many algorithmic processes of classification and decision making are are becoming integrated into yeah. the shaping of our lives in ways we don't really know. As So as citizens, we need to become more aware of that. But on an individual level, I also think there's a power in realizing that If you imagine life as a data collection, there's no way you can think of it as having one story. No, no. And so, if you feel that you don't have one story, if you feel that you don't have one story, that's not that's not a flaw. You're like everybody else. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Who wonders why
0: they are where they are right now? Like, yeah. And it it involves so much contingency and luck and striving and suffering and pain and tears and on a resume or a CV those things don't show up. No,
1: no. yeah, exactly. Except, except for that motif, there was a meme a couple of years back about the shadow resume or the shadow CV. Um, and there were a few folks online who were like publishing this alternate version of their CV with yeah. all the awards they didn't get, you yeah, know, right. and, and things like that. And, and I thought that's a very data-driven way of imagining your life, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. yeah.
0: Here's the yeah. point in my life where I had a complete mental breakdown. And didn't work on anything for a year. You're not going to include that in your CV. (laughs) Even though it happens (laughs) with everybody. (laughs) Even though it happens. And there's probably a
1: record of it out
0: there somewhere. Yeah, there probably is a (laughs) record. Oh, I'm sure that there is. I can tell you in my life. Definitely. All right, let's move on to Gertrude Stein. Again, another name I was surprised to see.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, again, you think about... um, Oh, just one more thing about Adams real quick, though. The other thing about Adams was, as I was... You know, my gateway was through his life writing. But then he also had kind of this well-established career as a histor, you know, as a historian and a, a writer of histories using this method of think of um, you know, history he was trying to develop called, you know, scientific history. And so that really was thinking about, oh, what if history was a data collection? you know, we could get beyond all of our interpretations of history and get to it. So so that was kind of another example of, you know, someone who who wrote this very data-driven life narrative to me, but it had been preceded by work in a empiricist discipline trying to narrate, you know, human history or trying to not narrate human history. Working
0: every historian um, runs right up against this. It's frustrating because you yeah. do want to say that your work is kind of, the Germans would say, Wissenschaftliche. You know, kind of scientific, it's not quite the right translation, <laughs> but then you realize what you're putting in and what you're leaving out, and you're like, Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's very, yeah, yeah it's yeah, and, and and the stuff that's left on the cutting room floor that it's with you your whole life, <laughs> you're right. like, You're always thinking about it, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, let's move on to Stein, yeah. Stein. So, yeah, so
1: Stein, yeah, um, you know, there's been uh just a, a wonderful vein of work about Stein that really digs into her scientific background. Um, So, you know, prior to being known as a literary figure, she was a very serious student of science. So she was a a student of William James um, as an undergraduate um, studying psychology, which James practiced as an empiricist discipline, although, you know, a slightly different form of empiricism than we might associate with psychology now, um, and then went to medical school um, where she also continued to work as a researcher um, and was doing um, research around brain anatomy. Um, and, you know, at that time, the the process of doing brain anatomical work was having a cadaver brain of some kind and slicing it very, very thinly to put it on a plate and then drawing it. Um, so, so this 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 again very physical embodied process of data collection but with this goal of exhaustivity right of of being able to see the whole brain Mm -hmm. Um, yeah um and so so i spent you know and and knowing that but also being very curious about kind of her later literary aesthetic which i think is pushing towards a kind of exhaustive representation you know so much of what makes her work distinctive um, especially in, in kind of the earlier period that I'm looking at. So, so I focus on three lives, um, uh, you know, kind of her breakout um, collection of, of these life stories that are, you know, very experimentally written. Um, and then think about kind of how, what she's doing in three, lives, how she later talks about how, what she did in three lives um, as something that comes kind of right after these years of being immersed in data collection, both about you know, kind of the psychological self and the brain, um, and and thinking about how is she imagining selfhood in context of having dived into it from both kind of mm-hmm. a psychological and anatomical perspective, um, and that she is uh, push she's pushing towards exhaustivity, um, meaning you know, towards a fuller collection of data in a way that really kind of messes with narrative, right? So so there's a lot of repetition. Um, so thinking about what if repetition and what she begins to call the continuous present um, in her aesthetic, how it, you know, that to me has this really important analogy to the ideal of the data collection. Um, and kind of, you know, part of I think what she's showing us is that if you if you were able to uh, you know represent the entirety of reality it would be kind of incomprehensible to you, or Mm -hmm. at least it would take a lot more patience on your part to, to kind of get through it. Um, And, and thinking about, you know, so why was this important to her? Right. Well, you know, kind of the, the idea that I pursue in the book um, is that, you know, it was, she, she says very jokingly kind of throughout her career, but often enough to believe she's pretty serious, right? She wants to be seen as a genius. She doesn't want to be kind of an average anything. Um, She wants to either be, you know, an amazing scientist or later an amazing writer. Um, But in in the sciences in particular, she's running smack up against a kind of very popular theory at the time that, you know, um, women could be women could be data collectors um, or people embodied as female could be data collectors because um, they're very good at repetitive manual labor. So Mm -hmm. she would be a great drawer of brain scans. Right. But um, you know, they could never actually have scientific ideas because Mm -hmm. only people embodied as male could be geniuses Mm -hmm. um, because that, you know, the the, being male was a propensity for creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you know, it's, she, she butts up against that, you know, constantly, right, as um, a student of the sciences. And, you know, for one reason or another, she leaves the sciences um, and moves towards becoming a writer. And, you know, what is she doing in her early writings? She's, she's, she's messing with narrative by including more data. Um, and, you know, kind of making, saying, like, you know, I, I can become I can become a narrator. I have that status. I have that creativity. So in some ways she has to kind of, you know, mess with the, the underlying assumption that mm-hmm. um, this data proves a certain identity about, you know, what it means to be female um, in order to kind of claim that role of being then able to tell stories. Um, so, so yeah, that's what I, I I look, you know, I'm looking really at kind of the, the, I, I see a lot of analogies if not direct continuities between what characterizes her literary work in that early period so repetition um her theorization of this thing called the continuous present in which each point is as important as every other point um which to me is again a, a, an articulation of kind of a data-driven way of seeing the world mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. and it's much more confusing than you would think <laughs> yeah. so well,
0: i have to say um, that in my vast even oceanic ignorance i did not know about her scientific background so I want to thank yeah. you for that.
1: <laughs> no problem. Well, yeah. And I stand on the shoulders of, you know, um, all kinds of scholarship that's been done. Um, so I draw on um, uh, Maria Farland, um, Natalia Cicere, um, and uh, Stephen Meyer, who all wrote kind of really amazing works that take science, scientific engagement as kind of really central to what she was trying to do later, not as something that she, you know, was just like, well, I'm done with that.
0: <laughs> well, now i got to go back and read some Stein now that I know this. So it's going to change the way <laughs> I, I look at it. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well. So let's go on to the final person you deal with. That is uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett. I was taught Ida B. Wells. Did the Barnett get out yeah. of Or how does that? What?
1: Yeah, well, you know, this is um, a decision that I made in, in how I was going to write about her um, Because I was focused, you know, um, well, I I focused on her data collecting work um, around anti lynching activism, um, but then also her later autobiography in which she refers to herself as Ida B. Wells Barnett. Oh um, then you, and, people
0: should be yeah. called what they want to be called. That's,
1: <laughs> so, that's basically you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and she did, you know, she did the the data collection work around anti-lynching um, before she was married. Right. Yeah. So at that time she was Ida B. Wells. So uh-huh. her earlier publications are Ida B. Wells. Um, but I was, you know, including a pretty important focus on this later publication where she was, she, you know, she very consciously hyphenated her name. So thank
0: you for explaining that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah,
1: this was, this was the last chapter that I wrote. And, um, in hindsight, it's amazing to me that it took me so long to figure out that this was, this was important to this book. Um, but, um, yeah, Ida B. Wells Barnett. Um, uh, where do you even begin? But she she grew up in the South, um, became a teacher. And, uh, you know, and at the same time, she was becoming a teacher. She, she always wanted to be a writer. Um, she started writing for kind of local, local journals, um, all kinds of very rich infrastructure that I don't know nearly enough about, um, of periodical publishing at the time and especially the African-American press. So, um, she was living in Memphis. There were several weeklies that were put out by African-American publishers and she started writing for one of them. Um, around this time, there was, um, a horrendous lynching, um, where, uh, basically, um, these three African-American, uh, men who were running a business together, a grocery, um, had, uh, you know, they had put, they had started a successful grocery business and uh, it was impinging on the business of a white grocery owner. And through a series of provocations, the white grocery owner um, basically puts them in a position yeah. of having to defend themselves. And then of course um, there's, you know, criminals who are violent and taken to jail and taken out of jail um, and shot at the edge of town without a trial or anything like that, of course. Um and this is not a uncommon occurrence um, for, at that time, Ida B. Wells. Um, you know, this this happens in various ways, um, sadly, all around her, right? She hears about it through the news. Um, she, you know, it's just, it's a fact of life, unfortunately, at that time. Um, but this, for her, she knows one of the men. She's a very close personal friend to that man's family. And she, she just... She's just not gonna, you know, let it go silently. And she publishes a very short editorial um, where she basically says, you know, the reasons that you all give for lynching, um, none of these hold true in this case. So how do you explain that? Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, and I began to go through and systematically look at reports of lynchings that I'd heard about. And in every single case, the the accepted narrative around lynching, that it's the result of um, you know, sexual violence against white women. In every single case, it was either not alleged or never proven. Yeah. Um, and that yeah, this, this basically... Is what I find,
0: yeah. This is what I find really interesting, is the almost empiricist reflex. Like, okay, you say this is so, well, let's go collect some data and find out I'm sure they did. I'm sure they didn't like that at all. But then, but then she does it. Yes. And, and with, and with revealing results.
1: Yes. Yes. And that simple editorial basically gets, you know, the, the building where her, um, newspaper is housed, uh, that she writes for, um, my mind is telling me it's, it burned down, but my, my caution is telling me like, just, you know, it was, it was attacked, right. Um, Whether it was fully destroyed or not. yeah. yeah. Whether it was fully destroyed or not, I I don't remember right now, but I do know that threats of physical violence um, came at her, even though she, she'd published. um, I don't think she signed the first one, but that, um, that, that the publication was attacked and the lives of everyone involved were threatened and she had to leave Memphis basically. Um, in order to stay alive. So the
0: other interesting thing about it is the is the almost I, I want to call it naive, but uh, well maybe I will and that if we just show these people, they're reasonable people, they'll stop this.
1: Yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's definitely something that Du Bois, Du Bois has that moment too, right? Like I, both Du Bois and and Wells Barnett have moments in their autobiographies where they said, you know, the world was for Du Bois, it's the world was thinking wrong about race. Yeah, I was going to collect the facts. We're just going to gonna show them, and then well, yeah. people will stop. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah well. I Ida I did B. Wells um, does not have that belief very long. Yeah, right, and and very quickly moves from, in some ways, like we need to show them, and then they'll stop to we need to recognize that this is a fight that we're only going to win through long concerted action and kind of communal self-defense. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that it's going to be a huge, it's not going to be a simple, like we showed you the truth. Now we're going to do better. It's you, you actually have to, and this, a lot of what this chapter is about, it's, it's about the labor of data, the labor of collecting data, but then the labor of ensuring that your data is received that um that people actually look at it and then even after they've looked at it that they do something about it which turns out as you say is not a not a natural instinct when it um has any kind of economic or political implication Um, our instinct once we've been confronted by what data reveals is often to either pretend we never saw it or to say well that's just too hard to fix Um, or alternately it's just not true right Um, so so, well, yeah, now there's... we have.
0: I mean, it's interesting how much things have changed because now we, most educated people have all kinds of sophisticated ways, sophisticated, I put in air quotes, um, to dismiss data that they don't like. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can talk about sample sizes and they can talk about biases among the researchers and they can talk about the source. Well, that's fake news because it came from this outlet. And, you know, they have lots of ready rationales to basically right. just reject data that they don't like. And, and this has become kind of almost a word game uh, mm-hmm. for people. Uh, and the, the belief that Du Bois and Adams and Stein and, and, and Wells Barnett had in in, in what is really, uh, it's just kind of an empiricism and rationalism. Like, okay, we'll collect the data and show them. And, yeah. and the disappointment that they must have felt.
1: <laughs> Beyond that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, right? And yet, um, it's still... I, I still, and that I think again, that's something that's very modernist about them, rather than postmodern, is that that there oh, is I a core agree. belief that there oh, is a reality yeah. that we can record, and we can do better. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: um, yeah. I so, agree. I mean, I see yeah. this all yeah. the
0: time. With you know, I don't I don't spend a lot of time on social media, but uh, I lurk occasionally, and I see people just use these tropes to dismiss data they don't like all the time. They don't even think about it. They just have these tropes at hand. Like, you know, right. and, and
1: it's become it's, an assumed narrative. Yeah. yeah. And it's,
0: con- it's what it would be, I would call it contempt before investigation. Like, I'm just, mm-hmm. sorry, this doesn't say what I wanted to say. So I'm going to say the following eight things that essentially uh, put it into a category that makes it less than what would you say? Credible. And, and uh, it's just, uh, it's very disturbing.
1: It is. <laughs> I don't know what it else is. to say yeah. about it. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 you know, as a librarian, right, we, we're talking constantly, right, about how we help educate around evaluating information, you know, reasoning, and it, it's become not just incredibly complicated, right, to evaluate the quality of information um, that you find using the primary means that we all find information, the internet, um, then there, that's also, there's also the rise of you could say, you know, actors not in good faith about wanting to know what's real. Yeah, right? that's There's essentially no... right.
0: It's kind of a pseudo skepticism. It's like you, right. the, the the position you're taking is, oh, I'm not against what you have to say, but I'm skeptical and sophisticated about data.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, not without reason. Right. Given given how data has right. been manipulated historically yeah. Yeah. and given that data doesn't give us a clear story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a huge open question. Right. Can we develop you know, cultures of deliberation around data that don't try to force it into a single narrative, but do try to make use of what it reveals.
0: I mean, it's interesting. This relates to this, this notion that's become very current disinformation. And I always think to myself when I see the word disinformation, what information isn't Disinformation from somebody's <laughs> point of view. <laughs> like it's all information, depending on your point of view. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Information
1: yeah. about something. Yeah.
0: yeah. Right. It's information. Yeah. But if you put the dis or maybe we should have a, the contrary, which is plus, plus information. That's the information I like. <laughs> Um, Yeah. Well, anyway, it's been lovely to talk to you. I I encourage people to go read your book. Um, Let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Liz Rodriguez about her book, Collecting Lives, Critical Data Narratives as Modernist Aesthetic in Early 20th Century U.S. Literature. It's out from the University of of Michigan Press. And by the way, you can download it for free. It's it's open access. So you can download this book. Liz, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Bye-bye.